What a great blessing to be back together with you at the beginning of this new year. I missed you last week, and I always miss you when I'm away, but I'm grateful to see so many here this morning. I'm grateful for this new setup. I know we're working out some of the bugs still. We pray that you'll be patient with us as we're doing that, but hopefully it won't be much of a distraction, and soon we'll be able to, to use it as efficiently as possible. But thank you for those who've been working uh, on that as well. Uh, what a blessing to be able to share in the good news with a larger audience. We're thankful for those who might be tuning in with us. And for those who might be listening in later, we're grateful for your presence. If we can help you in some way, that's why we're here. We want to serve God. We want to serve you. We want to help you to serve God. So we want to do that together. The best way we can do that is by opening our Bibles and seeing what God has said. So I urge you to walk worthy. Begin by opening your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 4. That'll be the base text we'll be looking at. Uh, and I'll read that again in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to ask you to think about something. What was the day that God wanted his people Israel to come together to worship him? What was the day that God set aside for Israel to worship him? And I want you also to think about what is the day that God set aside for his people in Christ to worship him? I just want you to think about that. Keep that sort of in the back of your head. We'll come back to that in a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read again verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What we, what we have here is an urgent appeal from one who's calling himself the Lord's prisoner. My version says the prisoner of the Lord. Some will say prisoner for the Lord. The one that was read before it said a prisoner in the Lord. The truth is, Paul is both prisoner of, for, and really in the Lord. He is physically imprisoned by Rome. But the reason he is in prison is because he's serving the Lord. He's mentioned that already in Ephesians chapter 3. He calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, as he's working now to spread the gospel beyond the realms of the Jews out to the Gentiles so that the whole world can come in. He mentions his prisonership also in chapter 4. In chapter 6 and verse 20 of Ephesians, he says, I am an, amb an ambassador in chains. And he's asking for prayers that he may continue to speak boldly. The idea of an ambassador is one who represents a country or really the country's king in this case, and he's representing King Christ. It's amazing to think about his situation. We've been sort of looking at emptying ourselves as Christ did Paul emptied himself as Christ did. He became a servant of Christ, and that's how he was able to serve men and even to become a servant in the sense of a prisoner before men. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he is writing together with Timothy, and he calls them bondservants of Jesus Christ. The word literally is slaves. In verse 13 of Philippians chapter 1, he says that as he's in the chains, it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that his chains are in Christ. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, I think it's an interesting thing to note. He says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. <laughs> think about that for just a moment. He's become subject to men as a prisoner. He's been preaching about Christ. He's been taking this good news, but men have rejected it. And just as they rejected the first preacher of the good news, Christ himself, they've rejected his servant. 
He's become involuntarily bound to a soldier, or maybe even holed up in a prison cell somewhere. And yet, he considers himself to be bound voluntarily to Christ. He's not thinking of his imprisonment as necessarily such an untoward thing. He is bound to do Christ's will, no matter what his situation or whatever his circumstance. He told the Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he talks about all the different things that he was suffering as he was able to do all things through the one who strengthens him. In Romans chapter 6, he has described already for the Christian this bond servitude that we have with our Lord. In Romans chapter 6, I want to read 16 through 18. This is the way Paul thinks of himself, as he's encouraging others to think of themselves this way as well. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, Romans 6, 16? You are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. <laughs> I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness." He has seen himself as a bondservant of Christ. And so his time in prison by Rome hasn't shaken him. He continues to serve no matter where he is, no matter what circumstance he's in. Can you imagine being put in prison? How that would hamper your ability to speak about the Lord? Or would it? <laughs> Did Paul not continue speaking about the Lord even from his prison cell? It's fascinating to me to watch in the book of Acts how when they're beaten, and abused for preaching Christ, they go to the next city and they don't get quiet about it. They continue preaching Christ. That Peter and John and the other apostles thought it was a great grace from God to be able to suffer for his name's sake. And they rejoiced in being able to do that. How were they able to do that? Well, it's because they had given themselves as servants of Christ. They weren't concerned with what other men thought. They were concerned about what Christ thought. They were doing his will at all times, even as a prisoner. In the little short letter of Philemon, it's interesting to see the appeal that Paul makes. And I think he's urging the Ephesians in the same way in this letter. But I want to look at that, uh, just a couple of verses there from Philemon, verses 8 and 9. He says, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, he is an apostle after all. He could give a command to Philemon. He says, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know my situation, Philemon. You know I'm just a prisoner, that I've been put in these chains because of Christ. And so I'm making my appeal, my appeal to you as a prisoner. And I think in Ephesians 4, he says, I'm the prisoner for the Lord, as he makes this urgent appeal. It's not that he's seeking sympathy. He's not saying, feel sorry for me because I'm a prisoner. I believe what he's saying is, if I can continue where I am as a prisoner for the Lord, when you become a prisoner for the Lord, you will continue serving where you are. You will be able to do more if you have the right perspective on who you are. And so Paul is making his appeal as a prisoner. He does something similar when he's talking to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Again, he's in prison when he writes this letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But notice what he says, but the word of God is not chained. <laughs> Timothy, you need to stir up the gift of God that's in you. He told him that earlier. You need to be preaching and you need to preach without fear. You need to go out and do what you can do. I'm in prison and I'm still doing. <laughs> We need to think about how much the gospel was not chained while Paul was in prison. The Ephesian letter, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, all of those were written while Paul was in prison. <laughs> what would you be doing if you were sitting in a prison cell? Would you be lamenting about the fact that you couldn't do anything? <laughs> would you be concerned about what might be coming in your judgment day? Paul knew that he was facing judgment. In 2 Timothy, he knew he wasn't going to survive that one. The first one, he wasn't sure, but he was fairly certain by their prayers that God would grant him freedom. But he was certain by the time he writes 2 Timothy that his day of reckoning has come, that Rome is going to put him to death. What would you be doing if you were in prison? Paul was finding ways to get the word out by writing letters. I'm so thankful for the work Paul was doing in prison because we have the Ephesian letter, and Philippians and Colossians and 2 Timothy and Philemon. But I dare say there's other people who are even more thankful than I am about that. There was a certain jailer in Acts chapter 16 who received the gospel because Paul was in prison in his city. <laughs> there were these people on the island of Malta that received the gospel because Paul shipwrecked on his way to Rome so he could be put in prison because he preached even though when he was on the ship. All those people on the ship heard the gospel as well, by the way. There's a man named Onesimus that Paul's making his appeal to Philemon about, a runaway slave who heard the gospel and was born in Christ through Paul's chains because he knew where Paul would be. He could find Paul easy then. He was in chains in Rome. And in Philippian letter, we notice that the household of Caesar was greeting the saints. How was that possible? Can you imagine someone like Paul getting to preach in the household of Caesar? How did he manage that? There were some he had access to from his time being in prison. He was led up before magistrates and led up before high men and was able to preach the gospel because of his time in prison. <laughs> when I look at all of that and I think about sometimes the situations in my life that I lament about, oh, woe is me. <laughs> It's too snowy today to do anything or whatever the situation might be. What is my excuse for not doing what Paul is urging me to do here? Paul was bound to a chain and yet he was walking with the Lord even though he was in that prison cell. Some of us are free and are not walking with the Lord. Some of us claim to be doing that. But in practice, what are we doing? Paul is urging these people to consider their walk, and he's urging them as a prisoner. Now, Paul describes life with the Lord and service to God as a walk. His walk with the Lord had clearly taken him to places that he would not have gone on his own. He wouldn't have chosen to go to prison, and yet he was walking with the Lord. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this phrase of walking with God over and over is used. I want to look at a few of these from the book of Genesis, where we first see this idea. Genesis chapter 5, that's not even the first time, but I want to start there. Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. This should be famous. 
this, this account. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Then moving on a little bit in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, we're looking at the genealogy of Noah and we're told Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And just a bit further, in Genesis 17 verses 1 and 2, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Enoch, Noah, and Abraham are all famous for having walked with God. That's how we know them. Their stories are retold again in Hebrews chapter 11 as being friends of God as they walked with him in the midst of a generation that wasn't interested in walking with God. When we think about walking with God, we're thinking about something that's deliberate, something that's not casual, something that doesn't happen to us, something we choose to do. These men deliberately chose to be different from their generation. Again, they didn't just casually happen to be walking with God. They made a choice. I told you that Genesis 5 was not the first place we see this idea of walking with God. I want to look at a contrast that we find in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, we see the account of Cain and Abel. And I want you to notice the conversation after Cain kills Abel, when God comes to him in Genesis 4, starting at verse 10. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. God's desire was that Cain should walk with him. At first, when he came to Cain, he said, if you will walk before me, if you will do the things I've said. In verse 7, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. God wanted Cain to do well, to walk with him. God wants men to walk in humility with him. But what did Cain do? Cain said, this punishment is greater than I can stand. I don't believe it's part of his punishment that he was sent out. I think that was his choice. He's the one who says, I shall become a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And then we're told in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he dwelt in the land of Nod. There is a hidden gem in the name of that city, <laughs> that land. Nod means wandering. <laughs> Here is one who wouldn't walk with God, but he was destined then to become a fugitive and a vagabond and a wanderer. In Micah chapter 3 and verse 8, we're told by the prophet that God's desire is for men to walk humbly with him. That's what God wants. That's what God wants from us. But the only way that we can walk with God 
is to obey him. God is holy. It's through his word that he can sanctify the obedient and make us come to him and be sanctified to be in his presence. I want you to notice this concept in uh, the Old Testament as well. Leviticus chapter 18. Again, we're looking at this idea of walking with God. Leviticus, perhaps the, uh, the most dry and straightforward book of law, speaks of this concept. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I want you to notice how much there's emphasis on what's being done. Don't do as the Egyptians. Don't do as the Canaanites. Walk with me. Walk in my ways. Keep my judgments and my statutes. Walk with me. God is using the book of Leviticus and his laws that are revealed there to make a holy people that can walk in his presence. But if they will keep turning aside and wandering in the ways of the Canaanites, then they won't be able to be with him, and he won't be able to be with them. He would consume them in his holiness. Deuteronomy chapter 5, he gives them this warning. Again, as he's encouraging them to walk with him, he says, Deuteronomy 5, verses 32 and 33, You shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. God had a desire to bless them. But he could only bless them if they were obedient, if they allowed themselves to become sanctified to walking with him. After all, Amos chapter 3, verse 3 says, Can two walk together if they're not agreed? It's not God who has to come and condescend to agree with us. He's God. He's the Holy One. He's the Creator. We've got to agree with him. And when we listen to his word, and when we follow, and we decide we're going to walk with him, that's what we're showing. We're showing that we agree that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is good, and we will obey because we trust in his righteousness, holiness, and goodness. David understood this concept beautifully. If you have not fallen in love with Psalm 119, you haven't read it. (laughs) There is so much to love about David's love affair with the word of God, because it shows him the God who wrote the word. I want to read just a few of these verses from Psalm 119. Let's start at the beginning, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And then verses 33 to 37. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. 
And of course, perhaps the most famous of these verses, uh, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. David understood how much he needed the revelation from God so that he could walk with God, so that he could see clearly with that lamp to his path to be able to walk with God. In the New Testament, we, came, we, we, we come to see that Jesus came and walked among men so he could show men how to walk with God. He is the pathway of light that David was looking for. It's Jesus who came to fulfill that. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We see clearly through him how to get to God and how to walk to God. In fact, it's only through him he is the way that we can get to God. In Romans chapter 6, we see more than that, though. Instead of just being the light to shine on the path, he has made us holy to be able to walk on the path. He completes in us what God was doing in Israel originally. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Perhaps even better, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're looking at Ephesians 4 today, but Ephesians chapter 2, look how Paul begins this concept of the walk. Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 10 with you. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He seated us in the heavenly places. That is, he gave us a heavenly realm in which to work. But he doesn't expect us to be seated there. <laughs> he's giving us protection there, but he wants us to be walking in the good works that he's prepared us for. He's taken us from a walk after sinfulness and brought us into a new life so that we can walk in good works. In Christ, we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. That is, we follow His path. We see where He is leading and not where we think we want to go. And so as we look at this appeal in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In verse 17 of Ephesians 4, he says, No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened. Don't be like them. Don't be like you were. The point is, these appeals are given because we have a decision. We can choose to walk with God, or we can choose not to walk with God. But I want you to understand, you're still walking. If you're not walking with God, you're walking in sin. There's no other path to walk. Those are the two. And so he's giving us a choice, and Paul is urging us, walk 
with the Lord. But don't just walk with Him. The decision we make to walk with Him ought to fit the holiness of the calling of the appeal. Our decision must be to walk worthy of what Jesus has called us to. That word worthy that Paul uses here means giving something its proper weight. When you're comparing two things, it means making things equal. The idea is seeing if this thing is the same value as this other thing. Jesus has called us to a holy walk. Is the walk that we're walking equal to the calling that he's called us to? That's the idea of this. Paul is saying, don't just walk. Don't just aimlessly wander. Walk according to the holiness of Jesus' calling. It's interesting that he makes that same exhortation four times in his letters. It's in this letter here. In Philippians 1, verse 27, he tells them to walk according uh, to the worth of Christ or with a worthy calling. Colossians 1, he tells them to walk worthy of the calling or conduct themselves worthy of Jesus' calling. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 12, four times Paul uses this same phrase because he believes that there is weight to what Christ is calling us to, and we need to measure our lives against that weight. If we're putting something on the balance, we've got a long way to go. We're never going to get there. But if we're not even trying, <laughs> we've got to be putting more on the counterbalance. How much does Christ's sacrifice weigh in our daily walk? That's a question that's hard to ask. <laughs> it's hard for me to ask because I recognize it doesn't weigh enough. If we're only thinking of Christ's sacrifice on Sundays when we're here taking the Lord's Supper, it doesn't weigh enough at all. Christ's sacrifice must weigh in our walk every single day. Not only that, every single step. Does it measure up to the holiness of the calling? In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter understands the worth of what he's been called to and what he's calling others to. And he says we ought to behave as obedient children, 1 Peter 1, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. He got that from Leviticus, where they were being taught to walk in holiness with the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he goes even a little more deeply with it, starting at verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be? That's a great question. What is the weight that you're measuring your life against? Is it getting a degree? Is it getting a promotion at work? Is it relaxation and enjoyment? What is the weight that you're measuring your walk against? If it's not the cross of Christ, you haven't weighed enough. You haven't gone far enough. That's what Paul is urging the Ephesians and us too. Walk worthy. Put weight in your step and may it be the weight of the cross of Christ. Peter says, be obedient children. Walk as you ought to walk. John will say in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Sort of as a conclusion to that, in chapter 2 of verse 6, in verse six, he says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's how we ought to walk. We ought to be walking as Christ walked. We ought not to profess one thing and yet walk a different way. We must walk as Jesus himself walked. In 2 John chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in. The commandment of love. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your soul, all your mind. That's where we are to be. And so all of these appeals are being made for our love returned to him to walk as Christ walked in obedient holiness. The truth is, we've been called to walk with a holy God. We need to put some weight to that calling. If we would be holy, we can only do that by obeying him. Only he can cleanse us and transform us. The word calling that's used here speaks of our duty. The word vocation is used in some of the older Bibles. I like that word. We think of a vocation, you think of what you've been called to do. Maybe your profession or your career. Something you've determined, this is the course that my life is going to take. That's what our calling is from Christ. It's our life's work, is what Paul says it is. That's what we've been called to do. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul's got the right concept here. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. This is where we ought to be thinking. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we profess to be Christian, that word means Christ-like, then we ought to be Christian. We ought to be like Christ. That ought to be our vocation. That ought to be our career. That is our duty, our life's work. But I'm afraid sometimes, brethren, we treat living like Christ as though it were a hobby. (laughs) I'll do that when I get around to it. I'll do that if it's comfortable. I'll do that in my spare time. I'm not pointing the finger at you. (laughs) I feel the weight of this as well. Are we walking worthy? Have we measured out the real worth of what Christ has called us to so that we see that before our eyes in our walk of life. We only get this life. This is all we get to work it out in. Like We have the hope of an afterlife. I'm not talking about that. But we've got one shot at this. We need to be walking with the Lord while we're here. That's what he's called us to. This call is not some feeling. People talk about being called by the Lord. The Lord laid it on my heart that I should do something. That's not the idea here. This calling, in fact, is an imperative. It's a heavenly command of God through His Word to His heavenly purposes. Hebrews chapter 3, for example, speaks of this heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, as Moses also was faithful in all His house. Could you insert your name there? Consider Carl, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was, just as Jesus was. That's putting some weight to our walk. 
would God register my name here as he did Moses? Wow. It's a hard thing to live up to. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, God talks about those who have been called according to his purposes. Now that's where the blessings lie. That verse is so taken out of context. All things work together for good. <laughs> for everybody who thinks about getting good things. No. For those who are walking in God's purposes, that's the idea. Whose lives have been marked by doing what God desires, good things will come from that. Did good things come from Paul's shipwreck? You bet they did. <laughs> did good things come from Paul being in prison? Absolutely. Was Paul glorified as he was martyred before the Lord? No, God was. <laughs> That's the way we need to be thinking. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, I want you to consider whether the Thessalonians thought about their lives in Christ as a hobby. I love the example of the Thessalonian brethren. It was tough. When they were converted, it was tough. There was persecution right away. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Sounds beautiful when you hear it there. But let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did the Thessalonians see serving Christ as a hobby? <laughs> the people all around them saw the change. These are Gentiles in a Gentile world, and they don't look like Gentiles anymore. They turned from idols to serve the living God, and everybody around them knew it. Everybody around them reported about it. Most of them had been affected by it in some way or another. And so I ask you, as we think about the heavenly calling, God willing, during this year, I plan to focus on several passages from the book of Ephesians to help us to consider how we may walk worthy of the calling we've been called to. I want to preach about that. It's going to be in our newsletters. I plan to write an article about it each week. I want you to consider, how are you walking? I want you to help me consider, how am I walking? Are we walking worthy of such a high and noble calling as the Lord has given us? I asked you at the beginning, what day did God set aside for Israel to worship? What day has God set aside for Christians to worship? I hope you recognize I'm not talking about the Sabbath. <laughs> Or Sunday. Today is the day God set aside for worship. But so is tomorrow. So is every step we take as we walk with Him. We gather for worship on Sundays, and God determines that we do that. But if we're not worshiping every day as we walk with Him, if we're seeing Christianity as sort of a hobby, just something else that we have in our lives, something that's nice and good, 
but just something that's just in our lives, we've missed the point. If we are not walking with God, we are walking in sin. We need to truly weigh the worth of this calling that he's given to us. Are you walking with Christ? Here might be a better way to ask that. Does your vocation match your profession? There are a lot of people who end up working jobs that's not what they really wanted to do. They profess to be one thing, and yet they end up doing something else. And in the world of work, I guess that's okay. But in serving God, our vocation must be also what we profess. If we profess godliness, then we ought to walk worthy of God. Not that we're worthy. He's worthy of that kind of a walk. We want to help you to walk worthy of His high and noble calling. If you're not a Christian, you can begin that today by confessing Christ, by Christ, uh, confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, coming forward repentant of your sins, having them washed away. You can rise to walk in newness of life. You can begin that walk today. We want to help you do that. If you are a Christian, but you haven't been walking as you should, if you haven't weighed the worth of Christ and His cross in every step you're taking, I urge you, as Paul does, to begin doing that now. I need you to do that because I need your help as I do that as well. And I'm here to help you. Whatever way we can help you to walk with the Lord, let us know that as we stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.